your name we pray. Amen. Till I'm transported 
Lovely, absolutely. Lovely. Well, tonight, again, we have with us a tremendous uh, privilege, and uh, Brother Dennis Corral is going to be coming to preach for us in just a moment. And again, I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, but it's called Revival Fires. He's the, uh, he's the uh, uh, one who writes this thing. I mean, he's the one who keeps it going for years and years now. It's a national publication, and uh, like I say, it's a good publication. It's a fundamental publication. And we are certainly honored to have him with us. He writes a number of books. He's going to share a few uh, things about his book table in just a moment. I've asked him to do that. And I think you'd be very wise to take a trip back there to those books before you leave and pick a few up. I know he's going to be basically giving them away tonight. I just have a feeling. No, I'm joking. But anyway, <laughs> he can't afford to do that. You'll see their quality books. And they're really, he does a fine job. And I think after you hear him preach, you're going to say, man, that guy might know something about the Bible. I might want to learn something from one of his books. And so anyway, he's going to come and preach for us in just a moment. Before he does, why don't you come on up there, uh, our, our mixed group, whatever. Yeah, there we go. All right. They're going to sing for us. And then uh, I've asked them to sing. And then he's going to come and preach for us tonight. There you go. Oh, 
right, amen. Good to see you here tonight. And uh, I'm going to tell you about a few things on the table back there. I'm not going to say much about it because the preacher told me that you were going to buy it all. <laughs> and uh, I know you would never let him down and embarrass him by not doing what he said you were going to do. So I have great confidence. I just want you to know what you're getting. But... Um, there's a set of books on Jeremiah. This is volume two. Only have a couple of the volume one on the table. This is the newest of the two, of course. There will be a volume three. And uh, so uh, it'll be yet to come. But there's a lot of material in the book of Jeremiah. And this is a verse-by-verse -verse commentary. Uh, this is a men's book. My wife has some great books on the table for ladies. About a half a dozen or eight of them. It'll be a blessing to you. She's a great encourager. But um, oftentimes ladies come by my table and they buy my wife's books. And then they ask me, they say, Brother Coral, do you have any men's books? Now let me interpret that for you, fellas. Do you have anything that'll straighten my husband out? <laughs> I doubt it. But these books are designed for men, leadership books. There are three volumes, some great Bible principles. Greatest leaders that ever lived are Bible characters. Amen. Greatest book on leadership is the Word of God. Amen. And I hope you take advantage of that as a man. Don't make your wife buy it as a Christmas present. <laughs> I mean, take the initiative. And uh, then there's a book out there on the consecrated Christian. The word consecrate means to fill the hand and... God is very particular about what he has in his hand. If I'm going to fill the hand of God, there are some prerequisites. And uh, this book, I think, will challenge your heart and be a help to you. And then if you're a preacher, uh, not necessarily a pastor, but if you get to preach in any setting, I mean, I'm talking about nursing home, I'm talking about uh, jail, from the inside or out. But... From the outside is the best way to start one of those. But uh, anyway, if you get opportunity to do that, this is 101 of my sermon outlines. You can tell it's a thick book, but they are my outlines. That's why. So there's a lot of material in every one of them. And even if you do not preach the outlines, I assure you, you get a lot of nuggets of true stuff that will be uh, get your mind working and jog your thinking in a certain direction. There are certain people I listen to preach, and they get my gears grinding. And uh, so that book, I think, be helped to you. And uh, then there's a book back there on humanism, the religion of public education. These are the more recent books that have been written. They're not the only good books. I don't have time to tell you about 70 different books. Uh, the button, that's about how many titles are out there. Uh, this book on humanism, the religion of public education, what I deal with is the fact that they have not removed uh, religion from public education. They have only removed Christianity. The religion of humanism, secular religion, is taught in every classroom at every grade level every day. And the lies that are part of the tenets of humanism are preached with conviction. Let me give you a statement by an educator. This guy's name is Charles Pierce, professor of education and psychiatry at Harvard University. He made this statement while standing before a classroom full of prospective public school teachers in training. And here's what he said to them. Every child in America entering school at age five is mentally ill. 
because he comes to school with certain allegiances to our founding fathers, elected officials, his parents, toward a belief in a supernatural being, and toward the sovereignty of this nation as a separate entity. It's up to you as teachers to make all these sick children well by creating the international child of the future. So if you're nationalistic and patriotic, you're sick, we're going to have to cure you of that and make a tree-hugging globalist out of you. Uh, I mean, if you believe in God, you're sick, we're going to have to make an atheist out of you. If you honor your parents, we're going to have to instruct you more perfectly and let you know that you're really a ward of the state. Uh, they don't have any business passing their values on to you. Uh, and so on down the line. Uh, but pretty interesting, and if you ask me, I think that's a rather brazen statement. That ought to raise some eyebrows. And I know you're aware that there are problems, but I think to what degree we may not be aware. And uh, I quote probably several hundred quotes out of the public school textbooks on different topics at different grade levels. I think you'll be shocked at what grade level they're teaching what to children in the public school system. First, you'll be shocked at what they're saying, how brazen they are, and then you're really going to be shocked at what grade level they start. Then there's a book back there that I nearly ran out of in the last meeting. It's, it's Excuses for Conformity to the World. Uh, this book deals with dress and music standards. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of excuses. Someone says, uh, everybody wore the same thing in Bible times. Well, I address that in the Bible. It's amazing how God didn't know that. Uh, some say, these dress standards, they're cultural. Well, if they are, we sure wouldn't have any in America because we don't have any culture anymore. Culture means refinement of character. Uh, but I take the Word of God and prove that that's not true. They're eternal. They're the principles God originated. They didn't originate with the Jews. God gave them their culture. Created the nation, gave them their culture. Last time I checked, he's saying yesterday, Dan, forever. Someone else said, well, that's Old Testament. We try and tell me the Old Testament's not the inspired word of God. Well, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 said, all scriptures give me inspiration of God. Is the Old Testament scripture? So is it inspired? Amen. You know what the next statement is? And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Uh, he said uh, the Old Testament's inspired, and he said everything that's inspired is profitable for doctrine. Would that mean the doctrine of separation, the doctrine of holiness, Amen. the doctrine of godliness? It hasn't been invalidated, folks. Someone else says that's legalism. No, I'm a gracist. <laughs> Bible said the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's the same grace that saved us from hell, teaches us to deny ungodliness, and teaches us to deny worldliness, and teaches us to deny carnality, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly. 
If you can find a better definition of separation from the world, sin, and carnality unto God, go ahead and find it and give it to me. I'd like to have it. But it's the grace of God that teaches us that, not the law. You're a legalist. No, I'm a gracist. Uh, someone says, standards have nothing to do with holiness. And that's about the dumbest statement I ever heard. Easy to address, and a preacher made that statement. Huh? Someone said, well, I know a preacher that had standards was committing adultery. Well, shame on him for being so sorry, and shame on you for using him for an excuse to be worldly, because he sin doesn't give you a free pass. I mean, what does somebody else's sin have to do with you being okay for you to violate Scripture? You're going to criticize him because he violated this, and you're going to turn around and violate that because he violated this. Huh? But someone else rejects standards on the basis of the messenger being mean-spirited. We've been feminized in America to the point that if you disagree with somebody, you're mean-spirited. If you have a position, you're mean-spirited. If you would dare to get somebody under conviction, that's mean. If you tell a sodomite that it's perversion, that's meanness. Even though God's the one that said it. Another argument is that someone says, well, some pants are more modest than some skirts. Well, I mean, I'm, some short shorts are more modest than some skirts. But God has a standard in the Bible. Look, folks, uh, don't miss what I'm about to say. The truth is that in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5, the Bible said, Man should not wear that which pertains to woman, neither shall, or, yeah, woman should not wear that which pertains to man, neither shall man put on a woman's garment, for all that do are an abomination. That's strong language. That's Bible. So let me ask you a question. Is the solution for immodesty to become a modest abomination? Or do you think maybe there's another solution? I'm just asking you. I know you say, well, you're mean. No, I'm giving you the Bible. The problem is we just, some of this stuff we don't want to talk about. One preacher said, I preach on modesty. I'm sure the man of the house knows what modest is. So we're not going to define it for him because that would be intruding into his realm of leadership. Doesn't that sound noble? Sound pretty cowardly to me. Uh, so we know we can trust the man of the house like Abraham, like Lot, uh, like Elimelech. Uh, maybe we better give them some biblical instructions so they know how to govern their house. Amen. Amen. Another one smugly said, the American culture no longer identifies britches as exclusively men's apparel, so I'm not going to deal with it. Well, you know, in Washington, we have the Bureau of Weights and Measures. Do you know we have there the perfect inch, the perfect foot, the perfect yard, the perfect pint, the perfect quart? That's the standard. Now, if I wanted to know whether something was a perfect inch, I wouldn't go to Europe where they use liters and meters and check it by their standard. So it really doesn't matter what the American culture is doing. It matters what God put in the Bible. That's the standard. And I need to go back to the biblical standard and measure everything by the Scriptures, uh, not by something that the world has conjured up. 
And uh, someone else says, and to me, maybe this is the one that irritates me the most personally. I say, well, that's a non-essential. Well, what that tells me is you have a total disregard for the will of God after salvation. What you're saying is it's not essential to get to heaven. Can I say to you tonight, everything's not essential to get to heaven, but everything in the Bible is essential to something. There are no non-essentials. God didn't put anything in the Bible uh, for filler because he didn't have something worthwhile to say. Man's not lived by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Doesn't sound to me like there ain't non-essentials in the book. So I'm supposed to live by every word. Then uh, someone's saying, you can't build a church with standards. That's more of that pragmatic thinking. You know all those verses that command you to build a church. You, you have all those memorized, don't you? You can quote them all. Why don't you go ahead and give us a couple? <laughs> there aren't any. There are no verses tell us to build a church. He said on this rock, I will build my church. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. We're supposed to go soul winning, get people saved, preach the word of God, make disciples, baptize converts, and God said he'd take the material we bring, build something out of it, but I'm not supposed to lower the standard to get a bunch of people in that have no spiritual interest. Another preacher said, in 10 years standards won't be an issue, and I assure you they're not an issue with him right now. Well, I don't know. I may be dead in 10 years. But if I'm still breathing, there'll be somebody making an issue of it. And I assure you it'll be an issue with God because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the originator of biblical principles that govern our standards. Uh, those are the, some of those things that people say. If I run out of them out there and you want to order them, uh, if you prepay, I'll just send a box of them and, and preacher, we can get names and he can just pass them out to you. So I don't have to send one to eat to this house and that house, the other house. And then there's a whole series of the children's books out there. I believe they'll be a blessing to you. I hope you take advantage of the opportunity. Uh, it's not all that easy to find good, sound children's material. And then uh, uh, we have some excellent music out there. Don't let that scare you. They have my picture on here. Uh, they don't really let me sing. My wife just put a family picture on there. So don't, I mean, I, you're listening to me talk right now, so I want to hear it sound like, you know, a bullfrog or something. But uh, I hope that you'll take advantage of that. Many of the songs on those CDs are songs that my wife has written, some beautiful messages in song, powerful message, the right kind of music. Matter of fact, the uh, song that they sung on prayer is one that Christy wrote and uh, just recently. And then... Uh, uh, we have the Revival Fires newspaper, and I think the ushers have some envelopes, and I, I don't want to take a lot of time talking about this. I've already taken more time talking about books, but I'm here tonight. I don't have a tomorrow at this meeting, so if I'm going to tell you about anything, got to go ahead and take the time to do it. But the Revival Fires newspaper comes out once a month. It's 32 pages, just chock full of sermons and helpful material, and uh, it will be a blessing to you. Normally, it is $18 a year, a dollar and a half a month. Right now, we have printed, for uh, till we run out of the envelopes, several thousand $9 envelopes, which is half price. Now, I promise you, it costs me more than $9 to print one and mail it to somebody's doorstep. I'm trying to get more people to receive the paper so more folks benefit. We cut it in half. We can't do that all the time. 
but we did that as a special promotion. When those envelopes are gone, we'll go back to the $18 envelopes, and we are running out of them. But I want to encourage you to take advantage of that. And uh, the ushers have those envelopes in hand. If you would like one of those, we're going to do it very quickly. I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to jump right into the message. But if you would like one of these Revival Fires envelopes so that you have the opportunity and the ability to subscribe and get the paper coming to your home 12 times a year, or send it to somebody else, for that matter, or both, if you'd like one of the envelopes, would you slip your hand up good and high? These guys will get one to you very quickly, and then we will go ahead and read the text, pray, and jump right into the message. I appreciate your patience. appreciate Pastor being willing to let me take time and uh, make all those announcements about the books. problem is I can't just tell you about books. I have to preach through them. I have a hard time with that. But anyway, uh, I would encourage you to turn those in tonight if you can. If you cannot, uh, because you're sending somebody else whose address you don't have, uh, then you can go ahead and mail it. But if you can turn that in tonight, I'd strongly encourage you to do it. And I hope you hit the table. There are package deals. Uh, they're priced by Rowan rather than me telling you what that is now. But there's a five-book package, an 11-book package. And uh, I had one guy just a little bit ago bought one of everything. So, I mean, if you want to do that, the price will be good. I promise you for as much material as you're going to get. Seriously. So, I, I mean, I want to leave it here. It doesn't do any good in the box in a warehouse. It has to get in somebody's hands and get read. And I write books not to make money but to change lives. I want to have an impact for the Lord. And I believe the Bible principles will affect people if I can get it in their hands. I want you to take your Bibles tonight. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 2. 1 Peter 4 verse 2. When you find that, if you would please, go ahead and stand with me. Stretch your legs one last time. I don't have people stand because I'm reading the Bible. I have them stand because they look sleepy. <laughs> and after looking at you real close, I think I'm going to have you stand for the whole service. First Peter 4 and verse 2 the Bible says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord to meet with us. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for this place. Thank you for the privilege to stand and preach the word of God. And I pray you'd prepare my heart to deliver the message. I ask please that you'd fill me, use me, empower me, Lord, as an instrument in your hand. And I pray you'd accomplish your will in every heart. I pray you'd bind the enemy off the service. We ask that you'd hedge us about with plead the blood of Christ on this place. And Lord, we'll give you every bit of praise and glory for what's accomplished in our midst. If there be a lost one, please, Lord, would you draw them to yourself and save them. Your people, I pray we'd be helped and changed tonight for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. I want to talk to you for a little while tonight about that little phrase, the rest of uh, his time. That he no longer should live the rest of his time, uh, watch what I shouldn't do, in the flesh, allowing my carnal nature to govern me, my appetites to control me. He said, I'm not to do that, or to the less of men living by uh, the standard of society, lustful men create trends uh, and the people of God begin to follow the trends of society and they get caught up in the lusts of other men 
as well as the lust of the flesh itself, and it is destructive, uh, and it will destroy your relationship with a holy God, keep you from having communion and power with him. But he said that he no longer should live the rest of his time to the lust of men, but to the will of God. I need to decide what I'm going to do with the rest of my time. I can't do anything about yesterday. I cannot do a thing about last week, last month, last year. I cannot change history, but I decide what I'm going to do with the rest of my time. I don't know how much time that may be. It may be moments. It may be hours. It may be days or weeks. It could be years but whatever's left is a lot less than what's behind me. And I need to make sure that I make good use of what I have left for the glory and honor of God. In Psalm 90 and verses 10 through 12, uh, God tells us that we are to number our days. And the first thing he does is give us the normal lifespan. There's no guarantee that we'll live this long. And it doesn't mean that everybody's going to die when they reach this point, but he gives us the normal lifespan. Uh, he said the days of our years are threescore and ten, that's seventy. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore, that's eighty. Yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, uh, those, that's the composition of life. That's what life is made of, the strength of youth. The glory of young men is their strength. We begin in strength. And as we labor with that strength, our strength wears away. And we better make sure as our strength wears away, we've used it on something that has eternal consequence, something that will count forever. Because regardless of what I use my strength on, uh, my labor, good or bad, is going to wear my strength away and we live in a sin-cursed world, so sorrow is part of this life for everybody. You know, Job said, man is born unto trouble as sure as the sparks fly upward. As sure as heat rises, man is born unto trouble, and there is sorrow even for the people of God in this sin-cursed world. We have to deal with some things we'd rather not deal with, but that makes heaven sweeter. But he tells us the composition of life. He tells us the normal lifespan. And he said someone may have a stronger constitution. And for some, the normal lifespan may be 80. But for most of us, 70 would be a pretty good marker. Huh? And then he said, who knoweth the power of thine anger in verse 11? Verse 12, he said, in light of what I've told you, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Teach us to number our days. So what does he mean by that? Uh, what he means is that I'm supposed to look at the normal lifespan, three score and ten. I'm supposed to look at where I'm at in the equation. And if I should be fortunate enough to get my three score and ten, uh, what do I have left? You know, I don't have any guarantees that I'm going to live another day. Because he tells us in this same passage, remember he talks about the composition of life, and then he said for to soon cut off. Uh, to be cut off means that it didn't happen slowly, it was suddenly. 
we are soon cut off and we fly away. Things come to a fast conclusion on some occasions. That's why God warns us about the certainty of death and the need to be prepared. Uh, uh, in James 4, 13 and 14, he said, Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into a certain city and abide there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas you know not what shall be in the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away just that quickly without warning. In Proverbs 27 and verse 1, he said, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. He said, Don't bank on something as fragile and uncertain as tomorrow with something as permanent and precious as your eternal soul at stake to start with. But don't be presumptuous and continue to push God to the back burner talking about what you're going to do tomorrow. You may not even have one of those. You know, several years ago, uh, I was uh, preaching with Billy Kelly in Michigan, and he got teary-eyed, and he said, Brother Dennis, 20 years ago it probably was, he said, Brother Dennis, he said, when you're your age, you go to your friend's children's weddings. He said, when you are my age, you go to your friend's funerals. I know a little more about that 20 years later. Huh? You know, life can be gone so suddenly. Last year, in hunting season, I had an evangelist friend, Jim Brown, come to my place. And when his children were young and ours were young, we used to hunt together. They'd come and their family come, stay at our house. We'd have Thanksgiving together. And he'd stick around the following week's first week of deer season in Pennsylvania. So I talked to him. I said, hey, man, I said, why don't you come? Uh, children are all grown, but I said, why don't you and Pat come like used to? And he said, you know, he said, I'm going to try to do that. Because he asked me when hunting season was, and I said, same as always, Monday after Thanksgiving. I said, why don't you come and have Thanksgiving with us? He said, may do that, and they did. Uh, the details worked out so they could and got there, and we had a great week, had a good time fellowship, first time we'd done that in years and years. And uh, um, on uh, Monday morning, we sat at table at about 4.30 in the morning, drank a cup of coffee, talked. He was his old self, who wrong with everybody, picking on everybody at the table. And uh, I said, well, okay, about 5.15, I said, better go ahead and get you down on stand, get everybody to the stand. So I, we get on the Kubota, I drove him down, put the headlights on his stand so he could find it and get, the, get to the ladder. He went down there, got on stand. I backed out, went to my stand. I stayed on stand about 11 o'clock, and I came out. And uh, when I got to the house, my son-in-law was there and his brother. And I said, what would you guys see? He said, just some does. I said, what Brother Brown see? He said, well, he's not back in yet. I said, really? I said, Christy, I said, why don't you get out of the apartment and see if he came back. And shooting down, he hadn't come back. And long story short, we, I, I went down to the stand and he wasn't there. Came back, checked in the apartment again. He wasn't there. I wasn't too alarmed because I heard some shooting. I thought maybe he had a deer down or one crippled and he was tracking it. And so... I thought, well, you know, I'll go see if I can find him. We get on the Kubota, made a loop down, and when we made our way back up with about 40 yards of the uh, yard, or about 20 yards of the yard, my son-in-law's brother said, Brother Coral, he said, I see orange laying over there in the weeds. I walked over, and he was laying on his back, peaceful, gun strapped to his shoulder, didn't even try to get back up, fell flat in his back and was gone like that. 62 years old, wasn't very old. 
That's sounding younger all the time to me. I, I'm going to celebrate my 60th. Well, we celebrated it a couple days ago. They had surprised me. But this Friday, I'll be 60. Hey, just a couple of years ago, I was one of Joe Boyd's preacher boys. Yeah. I went to bed one night and woke up and I was an old man. It ain't that bad, but pretty close. Yeah. Huh? It will get by you before you know it. You can't afford to waste any of it. I don't care what age you are. You have none to waste. None to let get by you. None to throw to the wind. You know, shortly after that, this past year, there was a man that had traveled all over America named Phil Kleiner. He's layman. He was a truck driver and a good mechanic. He traveled all over America and worked on my vehicles. He told me when I was pulling a fifth wheel, he said, Brother Coral, he said, if you break down, I don't care where you are. You call me. He said, I'll get in my truck with my tools and I'll be there. He said, within 24 hours, within 12 hours. He said, I'll leave within a half hour. I couldn't tell you how many times I called him in the middle of the night, broke down. I'd tell him what highway I was on, what state, and what mile marker. He'd climb out of bed, get in his truck, grab his tools, and come. He's changed rear ends, engines, transmissions, clutches, wheel bearings, you name it, along the highway. For me, a tremendous friend to me. Well, last year I got a phone call, and he was in his yard. He had a little shop. He was 59 years old, like my good friend Brother Fox that went home not long ago, a year or two ago. And uh, that was rather sudden as well. But he was out, this friend of mine was out in his yard. He just talked to a man and said, would you help me push this vehicle into a bay? And they were standing in the yard talking, getting ready to push the vehicle in because it wouldn't start. A tree limb broke off, fell, hit him on top of the head, broke his neck, and killed him instantly standing in his yard. I'm telling you, it's soon cut off. We have no guarantees. Life is brief at best. It's like a vapor. We need to make sure that we use what we have left wisely. I don't get to decide what I have left, but I do get to decide how I use what I have left and whether it's going to be to the will of God and for the glory of God to accomplish something that has eternal consequence. But let me just give it to you this way. Let's assume, and again, we've just clarified the fact that we don't have a guarantee of three score and ten. And there are people that live up into their 90s, so it's not out of the question, but I assure you they're a small minority compared to the great vast majority of people. But that's just assumed based on the three score and ten, 70 years. Do you realize that if you have a 70-year lifespan at the, and let's just say at birth, you have a full tank of life. At birth, you have a full tank. At the ripe old age of 17 and a half, you are down to three quarters of a tank, one fourth of your life. At 17 and a half, you are already down to three quarters of a tank. One fourth is gone forever. And at 35, you're down to a half tank. And at 52 and a half, and I got that in the rear view mirror. You're down to a quarter of a tank. Huh? I know what some of you are thinking. You're looking at me. 
you're living on fumes. <laughs> uh, tank's been empty a long time. Just keep praying for more fumes. You say, well, that's kind of discouraging, preacher. Really? Going to heaven is discouraging? Paul said, um, for me to live is Christ, and today is gain. He said, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. I'm not talking about how awful it is to go to heaven. I'm talking about how little time we have to do something for God and make our lives count while we're here. We're going to face him. Uh, I'm not trying to discourage somebody with the reality of death. It is a reality, folks. By the way, it happens to be the ultimate in statistics that one out of every one dies. Uh, heard about the fellow had been to the doctor for a checkup, and the doctor called him and he said, got bad news and got worse news. He said, okay, give me the bad news first. He said, you only have 24 hours to live. He said, well, what could be worse than that? He said, I've been trying to get hold of you since yesterday. <laughs> uh, hey, listen to me, folks. We have nothing to waste. The youngest person in this room has no time to waste. Your life will get by you so quickly. Uh, it'll make your head spin, uh, and you want to make sure you use it wisely. But he tells us, teach us to number our days. Why? That we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. He said, God, help me to number my days and look at where I'm at in this equation. If I have three, it's scoring ten. I may not. I may have more than that. I may have less than that. But assuming this is a normal lifespan, if I should have that, where am I at and what I have left? I think, I think it might put some urgency in some of us. If you just stop and realize how little is left compared to what's behind you, what's already gone. If you don't do anything for God, you don't have much time to get with it. I mean, it's time now to get started. And he said, teach us the number of our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to see things through the eyes of God. And if you don't see it like God sees it, you have a distorted view. If you have a distorted view, you are dangerous. You know, if you're driving down the highway and can't see clearly, you're going to hurt people you don't want to hurt, and you're going to hurt yourself with no intent to do so. Nothing premeditated. I just can't see clearly, and we're going to have an accident here. Accident implies it was not with intent. Huh? I, I wish it hadn't happened, but it did. He said that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. You say, how do you do that? Well, the Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Paul told Timothy, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Scriptures can make me wise. I get wisdom in prayer. Proverbs 13 and verse 20 said, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Did you notice the contrast? I'm not either wise or unwise. I'm either wise or I'm destroyed. And in Proverbs 13 and verse 20, the determining factor is who I choose as my companions. 
if there's anything that verse teaches, it teaches that everybody has peer pressure. Preachers have it. Adults have it. Teenagers have it. I don't get to decide if I have peer pressure. However, I do get to decide who that pressure comes from. Have you ever noticed that once you make friends with somebody, they, they feel at perfect liberty to counsel you when you didn't even ask for counsel? <laughs> to tell you what they think you ought to do about everything, and most times they don't even have a clue what they're doing. Huh? Amen. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. I need to find somebody that's already in line with God and let them influence me. I need to rub shoulders with them so that they rub off on me. But he tells us in this case that has to do with separation, has to do with getting in the Word of God, has to do with having a prayer life. He said, oh, good, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. He said, I want to see it like you see it so I can spend the rest of my time uh, in light of eternity so I can see it from a biblical perspective, an eternal perspective, a spiritual perspective, so he tells us that we're to take care for the rest of our time in this world do the will of God. In Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, he said, See then that you walk circumspectly. That doesn't mean in fear, but it does mean very carefully. You say, what does that word imply? It's kind of the way you'd go through a minefield. It's the way you'd make your way to the car tonight if you just got word that a lion had escaped two blocks from here if you decided to go to your car. Huh? He said, uh, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. To redeem means to buy back or buy up. You say, well, how do you, how do you redeem time? How do you buy time back? How do you buy it up? Well, there are a number of things you could do to redeem time there are things that we can do that enable us to buy time up. I need to turn time into eternity. Huh? I, but listen to me. Let me get real practical. You know, I can redeem time. Maybe I can get two, maybe I can work a 20-hour day and get two days' work or three days' work done in one day. That make up one of them days I wasted. Huh? Maybe I can burn the midnight oil. Maybe I can invest in somebody that will outlive me. Huh? And instill something in them that's going to outlive me, a principle that take them 20 years to learn, but I can instill it in them in an hour, and they can carry it on. Huh? There are things that we can do to redeem the time uh, to buy it back or to buy it up. Something else, you say, what else? Uh, well, when you go to work, what do you give them for that money? Oh, that's good. What do you give them for money? A chunk of your life? Yep. Some of your time, and they pay you maybe by the hour, maybe by the job, but it really doesn't matter which way they pay you. It takes a portion of your life that can never be recovered, and you gave it to them to get money. Uh, I could buy some Time back, redeem it by giving more because I gave time to get this and if I put this back into things that are eternal, I'm putting some of that time that I gave away for money and I'm taking the money and putting it back into eternity. Yeah. Amen. Amen. 
redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now, I don't know what you've done to this point, but it really doesn't matter. All you can do about yesterday is confess it and move on. You be thankful you have a forgiving God. And I can put it behind me and he will certainly put it behind him if I repent, put it under the blood. He'll cleanse me, but I need to decide what I'm going to do with the rest of my time. You know, in, if I live in the past, I'm going to waste my life. If I live in past victory, or if I, suppose I revel in past victory, or I wallow in past defeat, while I spend my time wallowing in defeat or reveling in victory over the past, I'm wasting the present. I can't do anything about that. Philippians 3 and verse 13, uh, Paul said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I have not arrived. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward into those things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He said, I'm forgetting the bad stuff, my failures, and I'm forgetting all the successes. Put that behind me. That doesn't mean anything today. This is a new day. This is a new hour. This could be my last hour. What am I going to do with this hour? I want to live it like it is my last because it really could be. Have any guarantees on those things? I remember Joe Boyd at 80 years of age preached a sermon titled, Go for More. In that sermon, he declared he wanted to get more people saved in his latter years than he did all the years up in the land. I don't know that he did. I seriously think he didn't because he was such a great soul winner all of his life. But I appreciate the passion and desire that at 80, he still wants to do more for God. He's not ready to pack it in. He's ready to do more for God. You say, well, you don't know how old I am. Well, I know Moses started at 80. That's when he started his ministry. You know, there's another little phrase in the Bible, henceforth, it implies from now on. In Luke verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth, from now on, uh, from this point forward, thou shalt catch men. You know how they responded to that? Verse 11 said, when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. From henceforth, from now on. That'd be a good thing to do with the rest of your time. From now on. Romans 6 and verse 6, speaking of the crucified life, says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth, from now on, from this point forward, we should not serve sin. You know that same passage of Scripture says, whoso committeth sin is a servant of sin. You tell me, does it matter if you're enslaved by a big sin or a little sin? Sin's enslaving, and sin is a killer, and sin is destructive, and sin is an assault on God, and sin is an offense to a holy God. The Bible said that uh, henceforth we should not serve sin. We're not going to be sinlessly perfect but too many of us have our little pet sins that we justify and things that the Bible says are wrong that we're unwilling to part with and we spend the rest of our time justifying uh, our violation. You can do that if you want to, but you're wasting your life. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15, the Bible said that he died for all that they which live uh, 
should not henceforth, should not from now on, from this point forward, live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Bible said for the rest of my time, if I'm saved, I'm supposed to live unto him who died for me. Well, unto has a number of meanings. Unto means pointed toward. Unto means connected to. Unto means following behind. I'm supposed to live the rest of my time pointed toward him, attached to him, and following behind him. If I'm a child of God, don't waste your time following the will of the flesh or following the trends of society. Follow him. Then uh, we have another little phrase. It's a phrase, as long as I live or so long as I live, which it's, it's talking about a certain determination about how I'm going to finish. So long as I live. In Job 27 and verse 6, Job said, My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. You know what Job said? Now, do you understand, in chapter 27, Job still has no clue what's going on. He's lost his health. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his servants. He's lost his status. He's lost his 10 children. He's lost the support of his wife. He has lost his friends. They become critics. And he doesn't find out what's going on until chapter 41 and 42 uh, where he has an encounter with God and then God blesses him uh, twofold of what he lost, but hear me. At this point in his life, he doesn't understand what's going on. You know what Job said in this chapter? He said, I have nothing in my life to encourage me to do right. But I'm going to hold fast my righteousness so long as I live. If I, and when he's talking about it, he wasn't talking about holding on to salvation. This is not imputed righteousness. This is personal righteousness, him personally doing the right thing according to the scriptures. And he said, uh, if nothing ever changes and I never find out why and I don't have anything to encourage me, I'm just going to hold fast my righteousness so long as I live. So I'm going to do right because it's right, not because it works. I'm going to do right because it's right, not because it's popular. I'm going to do right because it's right, not because it brings prosperity and health. I'm going to do right because it's right, not because I understand everything that's happened to me. He said, I'm going to do it so long as I live. You know, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 and 7, just before his beheading, Paul said, I fought a good fight. He said, this battlefield, not a playground. Got too many people want to play and nobody wants to get in the fight. Huh? I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. He said, I didn't, he didn't finish somebody else's course. He didn't change courses. He didn't stop short of the finish line. I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. And it's been an obstacle course. And I've kept the faith. He said, I finished without compromise. Now that's quite an achievement. We're all going to come to the finish line. The question is, will you keep the faith till the last hour? Will you hold the line and take the stand till the last hour? Will you, will you fight the good fight of faith? He was faithful to the fight and faithful to the faith and faithful to the finish according to those verses. He stayed by the stuff and it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. 
so long as I live. In Psalm 104, verse 33, David was having a time of hardship and suffering, and he said, I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. He said, you know what? I'm having a tough time right now, but I'm not going to become a bitter old man. He said, I'm going to keep a song in my heart and keep singing praise to God Amen. as long as I live. I'm not going to let life sour me. I'm not going to let disappointment and betrayal sour me. I'm not going to let the attacks of the enemy sour me. So I'm going to keep a song in my heart so long as I live. You know, a song of praise. You know, in Psalm 22 and verse 3, the Bible said, God inhabits the praises of Israel. He does not inhabit wood and stone. He inhabits praise. That means anybody in this room can build God a habitation no matter how poor you are. No matter if you have no education, you have plenty of reason to praise God. And if you fill the room with praise, he'll fill the room. He'll fill the praise with his person. I'm not talking about this praise and worship junk these people got where they dress down and sing a bunch of rock music talking about praise and worship. They wouldn't know praise and worship if they fell over it. It's praise of the flesh and worship of man. But you remember who, what tribe of Israel always went into battle first? Remember what tribe? Judah. You know what Judah means? Praise. Praise always led the way into battle. They're the first ones into battle every time. That's who God sent first. Um, you remember when David was in the valley of Elah to fight Goliath? Goliath cursed him to his gods and told him he's going to feed him to the birds. And David said, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. That's God's fighting name. Listen to me. When, the, when it talks about the Lord of hosts in Scripture, God is about to lead the host of heaven into battle. He ain't never lost. That's a win. Every time. But he said the battle is the Lord's. Uh, how'd that turn out anyway? Goliath cursed David and David praised God. David didn't curse back at Goliath. He just praised God. Huh? Now he did have to go into the valley and he did have to sling the stone. And I say it all, I'm telling you, David slung the stone. God put some extra smoke on it. He sunk it into that giant's head. He toppled over. David took his sword, cut his head off, went straight to the taxidermist. That's what I've done anyway. That guy had been on the wall. I had to look at him every day. I said, look at that, buddy. Uh, but the Bible tells us, the psalmist said, I am not going to become a bitter, cynical old man. I'm going to keep a song of praise in my heart regardless of what happens because I want, I want fellowship with Almighty God. Hey, I'm saying to you tonight, you need to number your days. You don't need to be discouraged about where you are and don't sit and fret over what you did not do yesterday because you're wasting this moment fretting over that moment and fretting today won't change yesterday. I just need to do something constructive with this day, with this moment, with this hour and make sure I'm using what's left for the glory of God. I don't know how much is left, nor do you. You say, well, preacher, we're in the last days. Well, let me ask a question. I won't argue that point with you. How many of you have ever seen a NASCAR race? 
Okay, not a trick question. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that on the last lap, they never go in for a pit stop? They never change tires or go in for fuel. On the last lap, that's when you blow the engine trying to take the lead. If this is the last lap and we're in the last hours, what are you saving it for? Go ahead and blow the engine if we're in the last days and the last hours. Give it everything you got. You understand, John Wesley was asked by a man, said, Mr. Wesley, if you knew on good report that you would die or the Lord Jesus would come in the next 24 hours, what would you do? And his response was rather interesting. He said, well... I'd go to Gloucester City today, and he said, I'd have lunch with the Martins, and he said, we'd have prayer together in the afternoon. Uh, we'd go have public services. In the evening, we'd have a meal and a prayer meeting, and he said, uh, I'd retire. He said, the next day, I'd get up, and we'd have morning services. We'd have breakfast and prayer. We'd have morning services. We'd have uh, lunch. We'd have uh, prayer again, he said, and then... He said, I'd close my eyes that evening and wake up in the presence of God. You know what he was saying? He was telling them that if he knew that Jesus was going to come in the next 24 hours or that he was going to go in the next 24 hours, he would not change a thing because he's already living for his departure or Christ's coming. I wonder if you knew that Jesus were going to come in the next 24 hours. What would you change? What unfinished business would you tend to? What soul that you've neglected would you go after? What do you have in your possession that actually belongs to God? You don't have to tell me, but I'm telling you, He's coming. Listen, folks, and I'll close with this. Don't miss what I'm about to say. Because what I'm talking to you about tonight is this. What you and I need to do is live in such a way so that when it comes time to die, that's all that we have to do. Live in such a way so that when it comes time to die, that is all that we have to do. No unfinished business, no regrets, no would God I had's. Just live in such a way every day and every hour so that when it comes time to die, that is all that you have to do. I wonder tonight how many folks in this crowd say, Preacher, I'm saved. And I know for sure I'm saved. If I died right now, I'm 100% sure I'm born again on my way to heaven. And you say, Preacher, if I, if I died right now, I'm 100% sure I'm born again on my way to heaven. If you can honestly say it, slip my hand up good and high. And if you're not sure, please be honest. Don't raise your hand just because someone else does. All right, God bless you. You can put them back down. I want us to bow our heads for just a moment. I wonder, is there somebody here tonight say, Preacher, I could not raise my hand a moment ago? Or I did raise my hand, but in my heart I am not 100% sure that if I died I'd go to heaven. Not sure I'm saved, but I have a desire to be saved. Please pray 
for me. If that's you, would you slip your hand up good and high so I can see it? Anybody like that, put it up good and high and put it back down. I do not know if I died, I'd go to heaven. I'm not sure that I'm saved, but I have a desire to be saved. Please pray for me. Anybody like that very quickly? Then I wonder how many of us in this room say, Preacher, tonight God spoke to my heart. And you say, I just want you to pray for me that God would help me to live the rest of my time, not to the lust of the flesh or the lust of men, not to the flesh or the lust of men, but to the will of God. Pray me, God would help me to live the rest of my time in such a way so that when it does come time to die, that's all that I have to do. No unfinished business. Pray for me that God would help me to honor him in that fashion with what's left, whether it's a little or a lot. Pray for me. If that's you, slip your hand up good and high and says all the crowd. God bless you. I see hands everywhere. That's probably 90% of us. Amen. You need to figure out what the will of God is from the scriptures and just decide, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to waste any time on the world and on carnality and the flesh. I want to spend what I have left on the will of God, whatever that is, every bit of it. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for speaking to us. Please bless the invitation. Minister to our need.